Hey, hey, good morning again, Redeemer. It's good to be in front of you. We're going to be finishing up uh, Ruth today, and uh, we'll start our Advent series uh, next Sunday. And our Advent series will actually be a continuation from this theme that we're going to touch on today, uh, and that is this coming of this son. Ruth's going to end with a genealogy pointing us to David. And David is going to point us to Christ. And so we'll spend four weeks looking at David's life and uh, gleaning uh, attributes and truths from his life that point us to a greater king. If you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn to Ruth chapter 4. We'll be in Ruth 4, and we'll be finishing up uh, verses 13 through 21. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may his name be renowned in all of Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you who was more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, who was the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram, Ram fathered Amenadab, Amenadab fathered Nashon, Nashon fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Lord, uh, we love you and we thank you that you are a speaking God. We thank you that you have carried men along in the former days to write your word. We thank you that you have also spoken through your prophets, and we praise you that in these final days you have spoken to us through your Son, that there is nothing about you that the Son did not reveal, that if we have seen the, the Son, then Jesus says we have beheld the Father. And so, Lord Jesus, we thank you for being a approachable, present, real, near, revealing, speaking God, and that you've given us your words that we might ponder and behold the wonderful things from it. Lord, would you be at work to open our eyes that we might see and behold these wonderful things and that it would change our lives, our affections, our realities even here. I pray this for your glory and your honor. In Jesus' name, amen. So um, I got into football when I was probably around eight or nine years old. And I'll be really honest, the reason I started enjoying professional football was really because of the uh, end zone celebrations. And uh, you might remember a guy by the name of Elbert Icky Woods. And whenever he scored a touchdown for the Cincinnati Bengals, he would do what they call the Icky Shuffle. And he would literally dance in the end zone. 
And this paved way for a Jamal Anderson, who was the running back for the Atlanta Falcons, and he would score a touchdown, and he would do the Dirty Bird, where he would do this same dance every time he entered the end zone. And of course, this paved the way for uh, other guys like Terrell Owens, who hit a Sharpie, and he, signed, he scored a touchdown and signed the, the, the football and gave the football to his agent. Perhaps one of my favorite end zone celebrations from Terrell Owens was when he played the, against the Dallas Cowboys, and he was a wide receiver, and he scored one touchdown, and he ran to the 50-yard line, the Dallas Cow, the, the, the Dallas Star at the center of uh, the, 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 the field, and he celebrated. And then Emmitt Smith, the running back for the Cowboys, scored a touchdown, and then he ran to the 50-yard line on the, of the Dallas Star, and then Terrell Owens scored another touchdown, and he ran back to the Dallas Star to celebrate, and then a Dallas defender came and tackled him, right? And then perhaps one of my favorite was Joe Horn, who was a uh, wide receiver for the New Orleans Saints. And he kicked it up a whole nother level. He scored a touchdown and had a cell phone hidden in the goalpost. He scored the touchdown and raised up the padding around the goalpost, picks, out, picks up a phone, and allegedly calls his mom on national TV with a cell phone that his teammate hid under the goalpost. Now, I know you guys are thinking, what does this have to do with, with Ruth? Well, those men were all flagged with excessive celebration. And it cost them a lot of money. Some of them were suspended, like Terrell Owens was suspended for a week. Cost their team 15 yards because the ref said, hey, your celebration is excessive. You're, you're doing the most. You're doing too much. I wonder if you read Ruth 4. Do you think that excessive celebration is going on? Did you notice that every single verse is about a son? I mean, look, look at how it opens up. Boaz took Ruth. She became his wife. He went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Now, that means that everything else in the front part of that sentence, that's helping us move to the goal of the sentence, and the goal of the sentence is the son. And the marriage between Boaz and Ruth is a means to the son. It doesn't tell us about the wedding day. It doesn't tell us about what she wore. It doesn't tell us what kind of husband he was when he married her. It seems to, to be moving us in a direction that it's about a son. The women, they tell her she's blessed because the Lord has given Ruth, a son. The women give him a name, and it's Obed. And then the author of the book of Ruth orients Obed inside of a bigger story and tells us who his great, 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 great grandparents are, and then who his great, great, great well, grandchildren are. Like, like everything is about this son. And here's the question. Are they excessively celebrating a son here or something beautiful going on? Is he worthy of this celebration? Is he worthy of all the focus and attention 
that's on him in this passage. And how does that relate to us? That's what I want to wrestle through this morning. They are excessively celebrating. But the first thing I want us to see is that they're celebrating because a son was needed to resolve the tension in this story. A son was needed to resolve the tension in this story. Now, I'm going to go here in a second and, and, and kind of unpack the importance of a son, but here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying daughters are insignificant. I'm not saying that women are somehow second class. As a matter of fact, when you, when you actually read this, this section, that it says that the Lord gave conception to Ruth. Now, Boaz is a part of it, but he gives conception to her. It's the women of the city who prophesy over their son, saying, this is what he will do. He will be a nourisher of old age. He will be a nourisher of your life, right? So it's the women, even when she is pregnant with the son and has the son, it's the women who prophesy over him. It's actually the women who name him, which is unparalleled where there's a chorus of women who actually name the son. One scholar says the narrator casts his naming in a literary form that has a female chorus that is representing the entire community and celebrating his birth and declaring his significance. It's females who do this. It's the women who say, your daughter-in-law who loves you is more than seven sons. In other words, what the women are saying, you had no sons but one faithful daughter-in-law, and the way that she has loved you, it is better than having seven sons. You see what's going on? That even though this passage is about the son, it's equally about the role that women are playing in this particular passage. Now, so what's the big deal about a son? That all ancient Middle Eastern patriarchs wanted one. A son in their own likeness. Tim Keller says ancient cultures were not as individualistic as ours. People's hopes and dreams were never for personal success, prosperity, or prominence. Rather... An adult's identity and hopes and dreams, particularly a man and his family, that they rested upon the shoulders of a son. Therefore, when God calls Abram to give up his firstborn son, it would be analogous to a surgeon giving up the use of his hands, a visual artist losing the use of her eyes. Now, why? Because the son in ancient Near Eastern culture, that's how the family name continued. It's how the family business was stabilized. It's how the family was continued to be led by strong masculine leadership. 
It is how a family was protected, even in the book of Ruth, where Boaz has to say, I have charged them not to touch you, right? That, that, that stay in his field lest you be assaulted. You have Boaz kind of stepping in as a covering over the weak and the vulnerable. And all of this was bound up in the hopes for a son. Which means that when, book, when Ruth begins, Elimelech dies, Malon dies, Chilion dies, and there are three women left. The question is, who will protect? Who will continue the name? Who will provide leadership? That's the tension that's in the book. It's the tension that was introduced at the very first chapter. And I think at least we can learn from this book that as we follow the Lord, we're not immune from tension in our lives. There are things that we need or long for that for a season we don't have. Right? I think that that's a theme of the book is that for a season they are without the things or without the things that they would have needed to flourish. And I think it's here to remind us that as we follow the Lord, there might be seasons when this is true, which I think paves way for the second point. A son is given by God to resolve that tension in this story. Now, there's something different in this chapter that's unlike anything we've seen since Ruth chapter 1. God's mysterious providence has been at work. That Ruth goes out to glean, and she happens to glean in the field belonging to Boaz. Boaz goes to the city gate, and it happens that the nearest redeemer shows up, right? And so God's mysterious providence has been at work, but there are only two points in the entire book where God's name is the subject of a verb. And it's at the beginning of Ruth 1, when Ruth and Naomi were in Moab, that, that she had heard that God visited Israel and had given them bread in Bethlehem. That's the first time it's used in the whole book where God is the subject of a verb. And the only other time is at the end of the book in Ruth 4. When God gave conception. You see, you see the theme here? That this is God's doing. That we believe that there may have been some barrenness associated with Ruth. That she had been married, some say 10 years, based on an earlier chapter, and still without child. And we think that that's associated with God's discipline. That in Deuteronomy, these two things are always held together. If you dishonor me, disobey me, and don't turn from your sins, 
then the ground will stop giving its food and, and also the wombs of your women will be closed. Those two things go hand in hand in the book of Deuteronomy. And so I think that's what we see happening at the beginning of Ruth, that there are no men, there are no children, and there is no land, no food in the house of bread because they're under his displeasure. And so God is the one who brought the famine. God is the one who closed the womb. And in Ruth 4, God is the one who acts and who opens the womb. We're starting to see that the Lord who takes away is the Lord who gives back. That he will, in one sense, resolve the tension and anxiety in their lives. Naomi, you are not empty as you thought. You will be full. And this son will be your redeemer. He will care for you, even into your gray-haired years, that he will nourish you, and he will be there. And the women name him Obed, which we think is short for Obadiah. And Obadiah is the combining of two words, Obed and Yahweh, and, and it, it, it means servant of Yahweh. And so his name, it means to serve. The first time we see that his name is in Genesis, where Adam and Eve are commanded to serve and obey. And so here, this son, his name is to serve. And what they're telling her is God has resolved the tension. You two are not alone. He has raised up a servant who will serve you. It's the Lord who's doing a grand reversal. And there's a grand reversal happening. In Ruth 1, there's no man, there's no son, and they're out of the land. In Ruth 4, they're in the land, there is now a husband, and there is now a son. In Ruth 1, the women of the city ignore Ruth. In Ruth 4, the women of the city are now singing her praises. In Ruth 1, Naomi says, I have returned empty. And in Ruth 4, guess who she's holding in her hands? A son. What do we make of this? This is God coming to their rescue. Reversing and restoring and not leaving them to themselves. Making a way out of no way, giving them hope when all hope was lost. He will not let this man's family disappear into oblivion. We're starting to see God's heart. They have endured bitter providences on account of sin. And he judged and he withheld food. Did he delight in that? No. He delights to give mercy and to restore and to give back. Dane Ortland has a book entitled Gentle and Lowly. Um, 
I really would commend it to every one of you if you're looking for a new book to read. The subtitle is The Heart of Christ for Sinners and Sufferers. And in one chapter, he focuses in on one verse from the book of Lamentations, from Lamentations 3.33. And here's the verse. He does not afflict us from his heart. Now, what's important about Lamentations 3.33 is it is the exact center verse of the whole book. There are six chapters in the book of Lamentations. There are 66 verses in the third chapter. And the 33rd verse of the third chapter, which is the exact center of the book, which is about affliction. It is about judgment. It is about hardship. In the exact middle of the book, he says, but he does not do this from his heart. Now, why is this a big deal? Here's what... Dane goes on to write. This is the theological bullseye of the whole book, the exact literary center. And it reminds us that God does not bring such pain from his heart. The Bible is taking us deep into God himself. The one who rules and ordains all things brings affliction into our lives with a certain divine reluctance. He is not reluctant about the ultimate good things that is going to be brought about through the pain. That is indeed why he is doing it. But something recoils within him in sending the affliction to us. He is, if I can put it this way, without questioning the divine perfections, conflicted within himself when he sends affliction to our lives. He sends them what they deserve, but his deepest heart is always merciful restoration. He goes on to quote Thomas Goodwin. Now now track with me here. My brethren, Though God is just, yet his mercy may in some respects be said to be more natural to him than all of his acts of justice. In all of his acts of justice, there is a satisfaction of an attribute, but there is a kind of violence done to himself in it. Scripture says there is something strange in his heart when he afflicts, that he does not delight in the death of a sinner, and a sinner. But when it comes to showing mercy, he does this with his whole heart and with his whole soul. In Jeremiah 32, acts of justice are called his strange work. In Isaiah 28, acts of justice is called a strange act. Goodwin is drawing out the Bible's revelation of what God's deepest heart is. Mercy is most natural to him. Punishment is unnatural, but it's necessary. Now, I know some of y'all are thinking, like, what are you saying? Thomas Goodwin, if you don't know who he was, was a Puritan who helped write the Westminster Standards, who helped write Westminster Confession of Faith on hell, on punishment, on judgment. He's the guy who at the Westminster Assembly spoke up more than any other person 357 times to be exact. So we're not talking about a theological lightweight here. 
We're talking about someone respected, someone who has a theology of hell and suffering and punishment, and yet what he's telling us in writing this is that affliction, though God must do it, is strange to him. What he delights to do is restore and give mercy and forgive. And that's what's happening in this book. Do you think he was smiling when he withheld bread? Do you think he's dancing because there's no sun, no air? No, he has to do it because he's just. But at the heart of hearts of our God, he's merciful and he's kind and he restores. And that's what's happening. He is meeting that need. He is resolving that tension. He has done what he has had to do in order to get them back to do what he wants to do. He's a good God. But this still does not explain the genealogy that Ruth ends with, does it? If this is just about Obed, if it's just about this small story of giving a son to these women, then why in the world does the gene- is the genealogy there? Why is that there? What's the reason? It has to be there. Because there has to be a greater tension than what they experienced. There has to be a greater story than this story in this book. And it has to be a greater son. It doesn't end with Obed. We're being pointed to a bigger story that's going to be about a bigger son that's going to fix the bigger tension. And that's the story of the Bible, which is how I want us to finish. There's a list of names here. Obed is named Obed, and he was the father of Jesse, Jesse the father of David. Now, these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Ram, Ram fathered Amenadab, Amenadab fathered Nashon, Nashon fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. Do you see what the, what the author is doing? They're taking us backwards, back to Genesis, and they're taking us forward to the life of David, which seems to me that this book had to be written during David's lifetime. And what the book is doing is functioning as a bridge. It's functioning as a bridge to legitimize the kingship of David. You see, genealogies could, could, in the ancient Near Eastern culture, you had two different types of genealogy. One would just simply tell you who was related to who. And in some genealogies, they brought legitimacy to the person at the end of the genealogy. 
by establishing a lineage of sort. And that's what the author of Ruth is doing. David is king, but where did he come from? Is he legitimate? Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin. David is from the tribe of Judah. And so what they're doing is legitimizing his kingship. There's a climax within the climax. We learn that David is not a participant in the story, but he's the rationale, the reason that it has been told at all. Now, why would this point us to David? Way back in Genesis 49, when Jacob blessed his sons, here's the blessing that he gave to Judah. Judah, you're a lion's cub. The scepter shall not depart from you, nor the ruler's staff from your feet, until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's coat to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. That's Genesis 49. So Jacob is dying. He prophesies over his sons and to Judah, you'll be king. And someone in your line will bring about obedience. Someone in your line will suffer. Someone in your line will always be on the throne. And then what happened to Judah? His two sons died. He laid with Tamar. And they have a son. And that son is Perez. And that's the first name in this list. These are the generations of Perez. You see the theme, you see what's happening, that what the author of Ruth is doing is orienting Ruth and Naomi and Boaz and Obed inside of this bigger story where this king was promised to Judah to come through Judah and he's going all the way to King David. There's the bigger story. And here's the bigger story, that humanity has walked away from its God. And this is why we experience sickness and sadness and sorrow and death. And from the beginning of time, God said, I will send a son born of a woman. And that son will come through Eve. That son will come through Sarah. That son will come through Ruth. That son will come through Mary. That son will be a son of man, son of God. And that son who will rescue us and be a part of the greatest story of the world is the son, Jesus. And he has a greater name than Obed which means to serve. This son will come and will be the true servant of Yahweh. And this son will lay down his life. This son will come and will come not to do his will, but the will of the father who sent him. And this son also would be born miraculously of a woman, of a virgin. And this son would grow up 
and fear and admonition of the Lord. And this son would have Gentile blood pumping through his veins. And this son would be the son in this lineage right here. And this son would come and be a savior of sinners. That in this lineage is Perez. Who was born because his father laid with the prostitute. And in his lineage, you will see this man named Salmon right there in verse 21. Salmon is Boaz's father. Well, who is Salmon? Who did Salmon marry? Matthew tells us that Salmon married Rahab, the prostitute, in the book of Joshua. Think about that. She was the one who he had despised. She was the one who left Jericho and lived with Israel. And she was the one who was married by Boaz's father. And they had kids and he was one of them. And it is through that lineage that the greater son comes. What is God saying? He is saying that there's a bigger story than what you see and hear. And you and I are in it. And he's a God who delights to show mercy. He's a God who's raised up a son who is for Jew and Gentile alike. And he's a God who loves to give mercy to sinners. Look at what's in his pedigree. In other words, the closing of Ruth it points us to the greatest son to ever be born who has redeemed us that we might be a part of the greatest story on earth. He's a great and beautiful savior for sinners. Let not your sin keep you from him. Let not you think that there is anything you can do that is unredeemable. Look at his pedigree. Look at his lineage. He says, come, repent and turn, and I will be a father and a God to you. And I will mend your hearts, and I will take delight in restoring your life. And so you ask me the question. Should they be flagged for excessive celebration? The answer is no. They're actually showing us how we should respond when we truly see the greater son who's resolved the greatest tension that's a part of a greater story. That's how you respond. You make much of him. You worship him. You adore him. You marvel at him. Because he's that precious and that beautiful. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you for revealing yourself to be a God who is abounding in steadfast love and mercy. Father, we thank you that you are a beautiful God, 
You're just. And you're righteous. And you're merciful. And you're gracious. We see your heart in the book of Ruth. That you are a restorer and a redeemer. You come to put our lives back together. Not just materially or relationally, Lord, but also redemptively. Thank you, Jesus, for being the greater son. Thank you, Jesus, for the greater story. And thank you, Jesus, for resolving the greater tension, the alienation and the chaos that would be ours apart from you. We worship you and we respond with adoration and praise for you are